Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this spectacular episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek and science contents of Starlog Magazine issues 23 and 24 from 1979. Special guests on this episode include Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss the Trek Report, including the latest news about the widescreen motion picture. Eddie Hines reflects on the impact of blacks in Star Trek The Original Series. Bob Vossler considers the Susan Sackett-penned Trek Report. Also, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy discuss the life outside of Trek. The poetic engineer, Lauren White, speaks about Jupiter's mini-solar system. Starlog celebrates three years of publication and more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey my cutie pie. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of StarPod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Gallatin Comic Con is being hosted by Town Square Records and Comics and is being held on November 13th at the Epic Event Center in Gallatin, Tennessee. Starbase Indy is the fan-run Star Trek convention held each year on Thanksgiving weekend. Its mission? To celebrate Star Trek's vision of the future by promoting humanitarianism and STEM education. And we'll be presenting a panel there. I mean, it's one of our favorite Star Trek cons. It's one that we've been going to every year, and it's a lot of fun. No, I can't stress it enough. Starbase Indy is by far one of my favorite Star Trek conventions. If you're of the disposition that Star Trek Las Vegas is too big or Dragon Con is too big, you want a more intimate setting with diehard fans that love both science and Star Trek, this is the convention to attend. It's a lot of fun. They do, they do a lot of Star Trek panels there. I mean, that you know, it's Star Trek all day long. They have guests that are the kind that, that walk around and talk to people. It's got a lot of Star Trek stuff and all the science you could imagine. And there's going to be a Klingon celebrity there that I know I've never met in real life before. No, I haven't either. John Shuck. They have a lot of fan settings. They have a room where you can just go and relax. They have an auction. Um, there, there's just a lot to do there, and it's and it's all Star Trek fans that we love to see. We have like our friends that we see there every year. What do you think about the room parties? Well, the room parties are fun too. I mean, we of course we hosted our own room parties there, but um, yeah, they're they're they they have a big Klingon party there every year. They always they rent this this huge suite for that. And and that's a lot of fun. And, and Mary Chifo was a guest in 2019, and she went to the Klingon party. And she stayed there for a long time and talked to people. So that's the kind of con this is, where where it's just a great, great get-together, where people just enjoy being there. And that's through the Klingon Assault Group. And it's so Klingon-themed, you actually think that you're 
you're walking into a Klingon room. They have all the Klingon decorations, and and since the Klingon assault group is always there, you you see a lot of people in costumes. And that they actually do a lot of room parties. They actually have a um, a room party tour at, at this That's con. Right. Yeah. And so and they'll, they'll take you around to all the different parties. And and actually they're they're all full too. A lot of like the rooms are just crowded because so many people love to go to these parties. That's how I say it's like what creation conventions used to be back in the day. And so this is this is still going on now. And this con has been going on a long time. And Starfleet Command fan club also has its major function there every year dinner on friday night yeah yeah the dinner uh with the members we all go to to the hotel restaurant that's the way they've been doing it and then there's also the starfleet command annual meeting every saturday morning during the con and uh it's the award ceremony and announcing promotions and this year they're also doing the uh, change of starfleet command yeah no doubt about it if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't been to Starbase India yet, what are you waiting for? Starlog Magazine, issue number 23, cover date, June 1979. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Asimov's 200th. Isaac Asimov is the most prolific science fiction science fact author of the 20th century. To prove it, he celebrated the publication of his 200th book by having two of them released at the same time. In Memory Yet Green is the first of his two-volume autobiography published by Doubleday, and Opus 200 contains excerpts from some of his last 100 books. Opus 100 covers the first 100. This guy is not only a friend of Gene Roddenberry, but is a big Star Trek fan. He understood the importance of Trek, and of bending together science fiction and science fact. He's a great author, and it's great that he's a scientist as well. And he actually did appear at some uh, Star Trek conventions. He was known for doing that in the early days. In fact, there's a question and answer here. The interviewer asked, Who's going to portray you when they film the Isaac Asimov story? I'm figuring John Travolta, he said. I don't know if he's a good enough actor. But at least he looks like me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, and it's too bad they've never um, made an autobiography film of his. That that would be good. Maybe it'll happen someday. And I never got to see him at a con. I think he kind of stopped doing cons when I started going to cons. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. And we are here uh, talking about the Star Trek report from Star Log Magazine, issue 23, back in June 1979. Kelly, what were you doing in June 79? Lots of things. Maybe, listen, maybe listening to Devil Went Down to Georgia from Jack oh, Daniel Band. There you go. That's right. That Charlie released Daniels. that month. Yep, yep. yep. I kind of took a look to see what we were watching uh, at the movies in the spring of 79. Um, this is a pretty cool list. The China Syndrome. Yes, very good. That's, it's a really good movie. Really good movie. The Deer Hunter. Very depressing movie. It is kind of a depressing movie. It's really good, but it's kind of depressing. Uh, shot in Pittsburgh, and, and some of it was shot in our hometown of Youngstown. Yes. Yeah. Love at first bite. 
first place. Do you remember that George <laughs> Hamilton movie? George Hamilton, yes. Of course, yeah, it was near... Well, let's go ahead. We had all these serious Dracula movies with Christopher Lee and all of that, and then comes along. And do you George. remember the other one he did about Zorro? Yeah. I don't know if, if I'm allowed to say the name anymore. If it's PC, if it's not correct, I'll say Look it. Look it up, Zorro the Gay Blade. Okay, there you go. That was a funny movie. I understand some people might not like it, but it was a funny movie. It, it was a funny movie. Rocky Two came out oh, yeah. in the spring of 1979. And then this one is a classic. Alien. Yes. The first Alien movie came out in the spring yeah. of 79. That was uh, kind of a big spring. Well, how about Moonraker? Moonraker comes out, yes, not long after that. What? Yeah, it uh, wasn't June or it, July, I think. It, in yeah. um, the UK, it came out in June. Did so it? Was, yeah, in the US, I think it was July. Such a fun movie, that one. Yes. And so, How so, did you like this issue? Did you look at the issue at all? I, oh, yeah. The issue had, first off, on the cover. Right? Yeah. It, you know, had Alien. Which is pretty cool. It was. Pretty cool. We, we were saying before we started recording, and we'll just say it again here, when I'm looking through doing the Star Trek report and looking at the Starlog magazine from, you know, 78, 79, part of me wishes we could go back to a time before the internet when you would go buy this magazine and you couldn't wait to get home and open it up and just dive through because – there was nowhere. There was nowhere else to get this information. No, no. It was, I mean, it was like a novel that you can't put down. You, you'd sit there and read it cover to cover, even if you didn't care about it. You'd read the classifieds. You'd read, you know, send away this clip to be the strongest man in the world, or right, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> exactly. Such a different time. Such. Uh, uh, it's such. A piece of memorabilia from that period. It's it's great to go back and and look at these again and and remember who you were at this time. We talked for a moment about an article, and I know somebody else on this podcast probably has already talked about the article before the Star Trek report. So forgive me if I'm bringing it up, but John Flory's monument, uh, a sci-fi saga in the works, and there's a lot of cool um, images in here. Um, just before Susan's report too. Just before Susan's report, and we were talking. We don't remember if Monument was ever made. No, so let us know. So we're gonna have to listen to the podcast. I'm sure somebody else will be talking yeah. about it, and then they'll let us know. Good point. Exactly. Let's talk about the Star Trek report. Okay. So Susan starts by um, saying that she visited Earth in the 23rd century. She was actually watching the scene where Kirk exits the Starfleet tram from the motion picture. Right. And um, I thought it was interesting, too, that she notes that uh, it is Kirk's first scene in the movie, but it was the last one that Shatner filmed. And that happens a lot. Shots are out of sequence all the time. Sure. But I, that, to be the first one for him in the movie and the last one he actually films, that's kind of interesting. And she kind of also described that this was um, after uh, the filming. The re I, what's that word? I can't think. Yeah, after principal photography. Principal. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. 
and there were something like a hundred extras on that um, big set. Right. And she describes all the different aliens and yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a period when um, the movie had gone into post-production and things had quieted down a bit. And um, I think uh, based on that, there wasn't a lot to write about yet. Not, not a whole lot. It was kind of a lull. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she talks about uh, some of the folks that are left in the offices, but, but you know, all of that production staff is gone and only a few people remain behind chiefly Roddenberry and Bob Wise and a few other people um, associated with um, who will be involved in post-production for the most part, it got really quiet. I mean, even saying they're letting go of, sound stages that housed offices and things. So it's got to be pretty interesting, right? Because you've got this pre-production period where you're building and building and prepping and prepping and then boom, the first day of production and you're off and running for six months. And while that might take a few days to get used to, then it becomes the norm and all of this activity and all of this uh, frenetic energy six months later, all of a sudden on the last day of production, it's gone light switch yeah it's got to be you know there's a bit of a drop off right when you're a kid in school or college and you're rushing rushing running to to get your your tests done and your projects over and then school's over and it's quiet i think it's got to be 10 times bigger than that though the drop but really for gene and wise and a lot of those people they're still going out um, hundred miles an hour, but it's a hundred miles an hour, not 10,000 miles an hour. Right. Right. Yep. They're still working and there's still a deadline looming out there. December 7th, yep. 1979 is still out there and it's rapidly approaching. Yep. Um, she kind of shifted gears and talked about a rumor, which I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah. Actually, before I go there, let me read right. you something. Can I read you something about the uniforms? Because she yeah, talked a ahead. lot about the uniforms. And, and Go so, ahead. So when she talked about the uniforms, and so what you're going to talk about here, I was scratching my head a bit because all this top secret um, filming's going on, very little pictures are being leaked, and she's, she's describing the costumes in – uh, we'll just say glorious detail. So go ahead, Bob. Sorry. No, no. I, I, I was going to say something similar. Yeah. A reader had sent in um, a Sarlog reader had sent in a question. Basically, you know, what are the changes in the Starfleet uniforms going to be? And so Susan began kind of going into detail, talking about Bob Fletcher's designs and the move away from the very colorful uniforms from the original series and how they're, grayish bluish muted tones and the only color was the patch of color underneath the um, starfleet insignia that denoted what department they uh, a crew member worked in Uh, but you're right she goes into pretty good detail the only thing she didn't really do is talk about the the cut of the uniform and you know this and that and but she even goes so far as to talk about the shoes are sewn into the legs Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah she yeah. didn't say anything about that funny thing on their belt. No, she did not. No, she did not. Which never comes back. Thank that God. is, I think, a Bob Wise invention. And 
it, it's so interesting. The idea of it was interesting, but we just don't ever see it again. It just got lost. Yes. I thought it was interesting too. She kind of um, ends that section with this sentence and this sentence really jumped out at me. Tell me what you think about it. Quote, Bob Fletcher in designing the costumes worked closely with Gene Roddenberry and Robert Wise and the abundant imagination of these three highly creative people serves to visually enhance the film. Sometimes sentences can try too hard. <laughs> yeah. That sentence seems to be trying a little too hard. Yeah. It's, it's, she, she was working it, working yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I liked how she ended this uh, Star Trek report though. She talks about, uh, the fact that there was a rumor somehow it got started around Hollywood that the premiere for the motion picture was going to be in Peking, China. Don't you love how this ends? Go ahead. You know the story. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so they're, she's asking everybody, they're trying to figure out where this rumor got started. How in the world would they get the idea that it was going to premiere in China? And, Gene kind of, you know, overhears it and is kind of blushing and basically said, that's my fault. (laughs) I was golfing with a buddy and he asked where it was going to premiere and, you know, like in, I don't know, um, California, wherever. And, and he was thinking, you know, the Chinese vice premier was visiting the U.S. at the time. And so he goes, hey, it's going to premiere in China in Peking. To his friend as a joke. As a joke. Well, we we know how that rumor got started. And yep. Also, who has loose lips? That's a funny story. It is. That's a really, really funny story. That kind of sums up the Star Trek report for uh, issue 23. Yes, it does. This is Bill Blair, the Guinness World Record holder for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career. Watch Star Trek? Yeah, you've seen me. Check it out. And thanks for listening to Star Pod Trek. The Day the Earth Stood Still. If you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't seen this, two words for you. You must. It, it was an excellent movie. Now, of course, we're talking about the original version. That's right. Directed by Robert Wise. Right off the bat, there's a Star Trek connection. Robert Wise, who directed a lot of classic films, but he directed Star Trek The Motion Picture, so that was my first uh, taste of his movie direction. And to know that he has a background in classic sci-fi, especially something as iconic as The Day the Earth Stood Still, it's this is the motion picture that changed science fiction forever. And this article goes on to talk about it, how important in the history of science fiction this movie was and gene roddenberry was a fan of this a very good look at at aliens coming to earth which is you know a common science fiction theme but this movie showed that the aliens could be friendly and it showed that humanity really has a long way to go before we could possibly deal with with aliens from outer space and that's the interesting thing this was released in 1951 so this is a, a prime time viewing in the life of Gene Roddenberry, uh, in his venture into absorbing science fiction. But before that, aliens were always viewed as invading the Earth. We think of War of the Worlds, something that humans should be terrified of. This took 
the idea that aliens were here to not only make peace with mankind, but by their actions, educate mankind, and in certain ways, even test their reactions to how they handle adversity. It's almost Q-like in a way. Yeah, because it's, you know, we, we always picture these aliens as being more advanced than we are technologically. And, of course, they were technologically and sociologically more advanced. And that that's always the story. And I, and I do think it's realistic because, you know, look at us now and we still think that there could be so much more to look forward to in the future. And and even, you know, like like The Next Generation, the episode First Contact was loosely based on this movie. Absolutely. This article actually has an interview with Robert Wise, and they ask him about his time working on The Day the Earth Stood Still. And he said that he chose this movie because he was fascinated by the story. I quote by saying, I liked very much the prospect of a science fiction film that was earthbound. I feel that Michael Rennie was very good break for us. When we first started working on the film, we, meaning Julian Blostein, the producer, Eddie North, the screenwriter, and myself as a director, we all agreed right from the beginning that the ideal Klaatu would be Claude Rains. But as it turned out, Rains was committed to play in New York and wasn't available to us. So back to the drawing board. Now we know Claude Rains from classic horror movies. He was in Phantom of the Opera. He was in The Wolfman. That would be a different twist to cast him. Yeah, I can't imagine that. The, I thought the actor they got was perfect. And I liked having a one that was less known because now when we watch the movie, that character is solidified as Klaatu. Instead of knowing him for some other part. Mm-hmm. But I, I liked it, that he was he was handsome and he w- you could think of him yes. as... As being someone that, um, that, that would attract people to, to, to listen to what he had to say. Oh, totally. So the message that came across in The Day the Earth Stood Still, when we say it's, it's, it's a movie that inspired Trek, or was, Trek was on the shoulders of this movie, we rewatched it maybe a year or two ago, and for a movie that's 70 years old, we could definitely say it holds up. It it does. It's still a good message for our times. I mean, I mean, and it was about bringing the world together. They, you know, that was a part of the movie. It was just, you, you know, it's it's just amazing how these old movies can still be relevant. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, "Star Trek was, in part, my attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day it learns to value diversity in life and in ideas." Star Pod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hello, my name is Eddie Hines, and the name of the article is called Blacks in Science Fiction. So I am a 47-year-old man that has grew up um, watching or listening to science fiction um, and became a Star Trek fan because of it. Um, I was blessed to grow up in the North in the 70s when um, blacks were created more equal than they were in the South or in the past. So I didn't deal with major racism or exclusion as much as my brethren have. So when I first started watching 
Star Trek television, it wasn't until 1982, and it was The Wrath of Khan. Uh, I thought it was a fascinating movie, gave me nightmares with the earwigs, um, very enjoyable for a uh, eight-year-old child. But I saw Nichelle Nichols in the movie and thought nothing of it. Another black person in the film, and I grew up watching movies and TV shows with black people in it, not knowing that um, up until that time, there were no major black roles in not only Star Trek, but science fiction in general uh, that were co-starring with white people. So I didn't realize the significance of having her in the show until years later when I watched the documentary um, regarding Nichelle Nichols and her role in Star Trek and sci-fi that Martin Luther King um, asked her to stay on the show even when she wanted to quit. So all of my experience is based upon research uh, and not actual experience. But I can say that blacks in Star Trek, as of now, has come a long way uh, as far as storytelling, writing, and opportunities. I mean, we now have a black captain, male, um, Captain Cisco of Deep Space Nine, and then a black captain, female, um, in Star Trek Discovery. These things would not have even been imagined probably in the 60s. They even would have laughed them out the room or they would have disgraced them and made them believe that that just wasn't possible to achieve. The article talks about the 50s, the 40s, early 60s, where blacks weren't even allowed to be in major movie roles or TV shows. And if they wanted to have something dealing with adventure and science fiction they might as well forget it because their lives are so low that they didn't have time to think about fantasy and leaving the planet or going to other worlds as other races were able to do so for me it was a fascination to see that black people struggled but still had the desire to be in certain genres and space and science fiction was a major part of it. Now, again, I told you that I grew up in the 70s where blacks were already a prominent role. And I saw you know, Billy D. Williams in 1980 play a black captain in a Star Wars universe. I thought, hey, that was cool, but I didn't know how significant that was. When people tell me, oh, you know, a black and a white are kissing. To me, that was no big deal in the 70s and 80s. I thought that was normal. That's a blessing to me, but for many people, it wasn't. These The struggle that blacks had to get onto television, much less Star Trek, was not even deprived in Star Trek. You see, Star Trek had the um, saying of infinite diversity in infinite combinations. That was Gene Roddenberry's motto when he created the show. And it works. Had the personality and the wisdom to show blacks and whites working together as well as Russians, Asians, and whites. 
So Star Trek was past what we consider the future. Because in America, blacks still struggle today for prominence and acceptance. Whereas in the Star Trek universe, it was normal for a black person to be on the crew with white people. I think that's why Star Trek was so rejected heavily in the 60s because of that concept and that America did not want to go to the future. They were happy where they were, where blacks had their place and other ethnicities had their place, but not on the same bridge. Um, I feel that television executives took a big risk in putting Star Trek on the air. Um, shout out to Lucille Ball and the Desilutes TV studios for giving Star Trek a chance to be put on the air and going with the notion of having a black female on the bridge and of course the interracial kiss that was something that the TV executives outside of NBC wouldn't have allowed um, and I think that's one of the reasons why Star Trek eventually got cancelled I think it was ahead of his time way ahead of his time Whereas now, it's normal. So, to, to sum it up, me, as a black man, I'm very happy with Star Trek right now. I think it's come a very long way. And I still feel the society is still not caught up to the dynamics of a Star Trek universe. But I feel that we're headed toward there. And I feel that if we don't give in to our selfishness and our dominance to be uh, homogenous I think that other ethnicities and genders could have a place in society and we could have Gene Roddenberry's vision of a peaceful future for blacks, whites and everybody Captain's Log Stardate 5122-2 while monitoring Earth, we found Bob and Johnny playing in the attic. It was a phaser duel. Bob, hiding behind an old trunk, spotted a shadow on the door. He fired three phaser flashes in a row. He missed. John started to work his way closer. He knew his super phaser was good at 50 feet, but he wanted a sure shot. They both started to fire. Bob was on the ladder. John fired. He hit the Starfleet badge, the sound signal to hit. Only the Star Trek Super Phaser 2 target game signals every time you score. Star Trek Super Phaser 2 target game, new from Mego. Starlog Magazine, issue number 24. Cover date, July 1979. Special anniversary issue. So as we open up this issue... It is very unique because this cover price, instead of $1.95, it's $2.95. It's a giant size issue because it celebrates three years of Starlog publishing. The anniversary issues were always special to me. I mean, I loved their, like their, the way they had more articles and really interesting articles. And they celebrated the whole history of what was published. And in fact, this issue has a special section of photos of Star Trek throughout the years. But the opening pages gives us a synopsis of how Starlog began, entitled The Roots of Starlog. It goes into Carrie O'Quinn and Norm Jacobs 
back in 1972. They had a small office. They were involved, believe it or not, in producing magazines towards the soap opera fandom. Well, I mean, there's an audience there, you know. Totally is an audience, (laughs) but you don't think of sci-fi fans making something for soap opera addicts. But the key is that they had a background in publishing. Yeah, and that makes sense. What they wanted to do was have a one-shot magazine devoted to Star Trek. Now, we know that Bijo Trimble did have the Star Trek Concordance, but what they wanted to do is have a magazine that talked all about Trek, and then within it have a episode-by-episode guide. But they soon realized that there would be certain legal problems if they produced a Star Trek magazine without the intellectual property owner's consent to it. Right, they didn't have the Star Trek license, so so that made it a little harder. So they decided to expand and not do just Star Trek. And that's one of the things that was maybe a frustration of them at first, but it ended up proving to be the winning combination because Star Trek fans also liked Space 1999 and Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman. They found that Star Trek fans liked a lot of sci-fi. And so this winning combination would produce, in June of 1976, Starlog Number 1. And they used the original cover art that they had planned on using for their original Star Trek collector's item classic. Yeah, they still made it a Star Trek cover, and and that was cool. So they got they got all the Trekkies interested, <laughs> and, and, and still had all the then, other, yeah, the great articles, yeah. Absolutely, and Starlog has always had Star Trek articles. At the core, Starlog, Star Trek is at the heart of Starlog. In a lot of ways, yeah. And, the, and it, and Star Trek still had enough back then to, to do that, to have all these articles every month. Even though it was a defunct show, there's still enough interviews, enough interest in what was going forward, enough rumors. And, and the, yeah, with, with the new movie and with the uh, reported TV series that they had started to make, yes. Absolutely. Issue number four, we remember this is when David Gerald had a regular column. And I really loved his column. I looked forward to it every month. Issue number six, Susan Sackett launched the Star Trek report. And I always loved Susan Sackett, too. And, and yeah, and her report was great, finding out what the news was about the new series and then the new movie. That's right. Uh, staff writer Ed Naha, now we know him from producing the record Inside Star Trek. He was a regular contributor to the magazine. So not only did we have professionals involved, but we had professionals who absolutely loved Trek involved in this venture. Yeah, so so this this is really just um it, it's also a a recap of what we've done with our podcast because we've all we've covered all of these things in the previous issues as well. So not only is this issue a photo celebration of 3 years of Starlog publications, but it also has some intriguing articles that are totally Trek-focused. In fact, there were quite a few celebrities that wanted to salute the three-year anniversary of Starlog magazine. George Takei said, Touche Starlog, may this birthday be just the first stage of many star years of logging your galactic adventures. Isaac Asimov said, Starlog, with three years behind it, is a lustry young giant symbolic of the new stature of science fiction in the visual media. May you and science fiction continue to grow, and may humanity enter a good science fictional world of space exploration 
for a growing and united world. Harlan Ellison Starlog deserves to flourish, not because you run pretty photos of multi-million dollar Hollywood hardware epics, hell, every half-wit newsstand publication from Time to TV Guide waits space like that. No, you deserve to live high and fully and to a ripe old age because you perceive the universe as being greater and nobler than a Burbank Studios soundstage. You view all this flummery and slam-bang sophomorism with a clear eye and a rational nature, and you understand that it is possible to draw in the naive and the innocent with the pretty pictures and enrich them with an introduction to their own potential for greatness and godhood through achievement and imagination. You deserve praise and support because you fight the good fight, trapped between your own lofty ethics and your need to purvey cheap trill, cheap thrills to get their attention. It cannot be an easy task, and I applaud you. Okay, does that surprise you that Harlan Ellison would... <laughs> oh, that was a mouthful. I mean, really? <laughs> David Gerald said, I think I have figured out the secret of Starlog. This is the magazine that Carrie O'Quinn, Howard Zimmerman, and Norman Jacobs all wished for when they were 13, only there was no one publishing it yet, so they had to grow up and do it themselves. I think it must also be the magazine that I used to wish for when I was 13, and that's why I twisted Carrie O'Quinn's arms to let me be part of it. I'm pleased and proud to have played even a small role in Starlog's success. Yeah, and that's great. So, so David Gerald, who who is a part of Starlog, he's a columnist. He actually wanted to write a letter too to thank them. Susan Sackett, congratulations on beginning Starlog's fourth year of publication. One of the reasons that Star Trek fans have continued to be so popular is the coverage we have been given in Starlog all these years, and I'm delighted that my column has just been one part of that. May Starlog keep on trekking until the 23rd century. She's amazing. And that's true. Starlog did have fans that contributed. And Gene Roddenberry said, May Starlog go as far in the next 30 years as it has come in the last three. I have both enjoyed your magazine and profited from the information and entertainment it contains. And so Gene Roddenberry actually read Starlog too. <laughs> yeah, that's great to know that the great bird of the galaxy... We know that his involvement in fandom and appreciating the fans of who we were is it's it set the standard of what all other creators hopefully would would have in in the future as well. Log entries: latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Star Trek: The Pinball Game. Bally's Star Trek. Though utilizing the well-recognized logo from the television show rather than the, than the movie art, features the redesigned Enterprise on the black glass. New crew members Ilea, to be played by Persis Kambada, and Commander Willard Decker, Stephen Collins, are featured on the play area itself. All crew members carry updated tricorders and phasers. Features of play include the opportunity to jump to hyperspace or interwarp via the warp speed lane in the course of the player's five-ball mission to explore new worlds. Now, we've played this pinball machine before from 1979. It's a blast to think that this was newsworthy, that Star Trek was getting a refresh in the world of pinball. 
The pinball game was, I mean, it was pretty fun. I never played it back then. Yes, it was really promoting the motion picture. Totally, totally. And I think that's one of the things about going to video game conventions, like we go to Music City Multicon or any of these arcades that are popping up everywhere. They're... That's it's like a new rage now is playing old school pinball games and, and video games at centers that are totally devoted to that. You pay one price and you could spend hours there. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a new thing, and they they have these um these retro game places all over the place now. Hi everyone, it's Bob Vossler again, and my segment today concerns Starlog. Issue number 24, hard to believe uh, that I believe I had this issue way back when. I might still have it up in my attic somewhere. And uh, it was great to revisit it. Um, the article is by Susan Sackett, and it's reviving, uh, rather rekindling um, the third year of the magazine, which... Uh, Really makes me feel old because, uh, of course, they're talking about the production of Star Trek, the motion picture with a wonderful picture with Robert Wise, the director, Gene Roddenberry looking like, you know, someone from the Beatles uh, with that hairdo. And, of course, uh, William Shatner sitting in the command chair, DeForest Kelly as Dr. McCoy, and, of course, Spock, minus the collar that he would wear um, in other scenes of the the of the uh, the movie, uh, which made him a little bit more distinguished, I think. So I'm glad they added that. But I digress. Um, Susan Sackett had also worked on a periodical, according to this article, called uh, TV Show People, and after. Uh, an article about Gene Roddenberry. She went to a couple of other interviews with television personalities and, uh, unfortunately, uh, show people folded. But uh, she came to like a lot of the people that uh, she would later work with on uh, Starlog. So she uh, definitely um, was a great asset to the magazine keeping track on all aspects of Star Trek. I like the fact that this article addressed some mundane kind of information, some details from the motion picture, such as a reader who asked whether Willard Decker, the son of the late Commodore Matt Decker of the USS Constellation, who more famously appeared in The Doomsday Machine, wonderfully portrayed by William Wyndham, was, uh, you know, uh, his son. And uh, we've all come to understand through the novelization that uh, that he was. But Gene, uh, who had this idea in mind uh, in the script, never spelled it out. Uh, just as we would later never really know officially the backstory of Savick from Star Trek II and Star Trek III and a little bit in uh, Star Trek IV. And it's kind of interesting that some of these things that we come to as fans 
find that are canon and, and official and would seem to be the natural point of the story are never explicitly pointed out, like the Decker, Matt Decker connection, which I think would have made for a very nice um, reference point to fit right into the script of Star Trek The Motion Picture. It would have perhaps explained a little bit more the tension between Kirk and young Decker. It may have also examined the point of exploring an unknown but dangerous um, alien, similar to the, the Doomsday Machine. Just Just a line from Decker to say... Something like, well, you know what killed my father? Uh, you you know that more than anyone else, you know, Admiral Kirk. I, I could see that line uh, having been written, but it never was. And uh, to me, that, that was a wasted opportunity. Uh, you establish a character who is um, clearly connected to a very well-known character in a very popular episode. The Doomsday Machine always ranks up there as one of the top 10 episodes of classic Trek on anybody's list. And, um, and it's squandered, you know, uh, I know we would later see Willard Decker, um, incorporated basically as what they were envisioning, uh, were he to have continued on in the Star Trek phase, uh, two, uh, series. Um, Pretty much what we saw with Riker, because they took the elements of Riker and uh, Ilea for uh, Deanna Troy. So, you know, they were kind of like the inspiration for those two next-gen characters. But getting back to the article, Susan also mentions a benefit game for Muscular Dystrophy Association. The games were played, I presume, baseball at uh, Rancho Park, across the street from 20th Century Fox Studios. And she mentions playing against uh, members of other films and television shows, uh, such as Mork and Mindy, Merv Griffin, Kaz, and I completely forgot that show, um, and The Bad News Bears. That's right, The Bad News Bears TV series. And she said that meant the crew, not the kids in what was a new series at the time. Because she said it would be embarrassing if they were beaten by the little kids. <laughs> Since that show was about a Little League baseball team. What also caught my attention in this article is they mention a Jim Moans, president of the IDIC, ITIC, Star Trek fan club in Malign... Illinois, who wanted to know more about the new Star Trek merchandise based on Star Trek The Motion Picture. And that was mentioned that the article in the previous page of uh, that uh, Star Trek report showed the electronic Enterprise, and it also showed an electronic Battlestar Galactica command ship, and it also showed... Uh, Starbird's Avenger and Intruder, which uh, I vaguely recall, um, but I don't recall the Battlestar Galactica command ship ever really coming out. I could be wrong about that. 
I know Mattel came out with a lot of different merchandise for Battlestar Galactica, and I have a lot of that stuff. But uh, if they had that electronic Battlestar Galactica, I'm wondering why I didn't get it at the time. Um, I certainly know I had the Star Trek uh, electronic Enterprise um, and the Starbirds Avenger. Uh, they, they look pretty cool. I'd love to have that now. The, the uh, thing that really stands out on the page uh, opposite the Star Trek report, which featured the fan news by Susan Sackett, was uh, the large picture on top of Rom the Space Knight. If anybody remembers Rom the Space Knight, it might be from the Marvel Comics uh, comic book of the 70s and 80s. But Rom, of course, started out as a toy uh, from Parker Brothers. And he was, according to this article, uh, opposite the first space-inspired electronic action figure. 13 inches tall, Rom came equipped with a light communicator, laser, rocket pod packet, uh, backpack, and other space-age accessories. Among his repertoire of spacey sound effects was a eerily realistic breathing sound. Interesting. I never got into the ROM comic book, even though I was picking up Marvel comics left and right, as as well as DC comics at the time. Um, Back when comics were, you know, 25 cents, 35 cents. Um, Yeah, I picked up a lot of stuff at that time. But ROM just just seemed a little hokey to me and uh, was just not interesting to, to me. Uh, he was also too big. I, I noticed that uh, the scale, I don't know about the rest of you, but I just didn't have as much interest in the larger figures, even in Star Trek when they went to 12 inches. I liked my Mego 8-inch uh, dolls. I hate to call them dolls, but they're not quite action figures. <coughs> and actually, for Star Trek The Motion Picture, preferred the smaller Star Wars uh, size uh, action figures as opposed to um, the even the Mego dolls. But of course, I had the Mego dolls. Um, that's, you know, I, I just think they're easier to uh, store, <laughs> easier to play with. And, uh, you know, they still can have lots of detail. But, uh, again... Um, it was really nostalgic to go back to this another article of Starlog and to see what was happening at that time uh, because it always makes me think back to what I was doing at that time. And I know Starlog was a big part of my fan consumption of always wanting to know the nitty-gritty, always wanting to know what was coming up, uh, and who was going to be in it, who was producing it, who was doing the special effects, uh, and what the actors were thinking about the projects they were about to be involved in, um, and how filming was coming along. So all that little nitty-gritty stuff, um, which, of course, now we get through the Internet, but I don't think it's quite as accurate. I think back then when we read an article of Starlog, we kind of took it, that they knew what they were talking about, got the straight story, 
we didn't have to worry about it just being another idle rumor like we do now on uh, on social media. All right, here's an advertisement for solar-powered watches, digital watches, technology of the future today with chronograph or alarm. Do you remember the big deal about digital watches back in the day? Yeah, it, it was a new thing, and they were trying to push it. you got to figure now you can find digital watches dirt cheap, like at discount stores. This advertisement if you have it with a chrono, it's $79. If you have it with an alarm, it's $89. Holy cow! <laughs> yeah, and that that's a lot now. So consider back then. I it's mean, ludicrous. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it shows that technology was at the forefront, especially of Star Trek fans' minds. This, this was the future of keeping time. Mego presents the Star Trek Universe's new line of 14-inch action figures. Captain James T. Kirk, Earthman. 14-inch Mego figures. Commander Spock, Vulcan science officer. 14-inch Mego figures. The Gorn, a feared enemy of the Federation. 14-inch Mego figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. State of the Art. A column by David Gerald. So David's talking about B. Joe Trimble's new project. I mean, we know B. Joe Trimble from spearheading the letter writing campaign. Yeah, she's the lady who saved Star Trek and uh, got got a third season for Star Trek. We met her at a convention before. She's still absolutely in love with Star Trek. This is a lifelong endeavor for her is promoting the positive values of Trek. She's an awesome lady, and it's great that she loves to to still meet the fans. She'll she'll go around the con and talk to the fans. And we know her also as the author of the Star Trek Concordance. And she was one of the ones that gave Gene the idea, Gene and Magil, the idea of whenever you're selling items through the mail, try to keep them small and flat to keep postage down. Because it was kind of like a garage system early on Lincoln Enterprises. It wasn't Star Trek wasn't the empire that it is now. Yeah, yeah. So she gave them idea for things to sell for their for their um, company that Gene Roddenberry was trying to to merchandise Star Trek items. So this column talks about Bijo's new involvement. She's the editor of a small magazine called Megamart. And Megamart is an advertising newsletter for science fiction and fantasy fans. You gotta remember Back when we were growing up, you couldn't just go to a store and it would be flooded with all the latest science fiction and fantasy and superhero movie items. Sure, there was some stuff for a little while. Even I remember having Superman pillowcases when I was a kid when the Superman movie came out. But, you know, it wasn't the Christopher Reeve Superman. It was just a generic DC comic Superman, probably Neil Adams art or something. They didn't have, no one really had, besides Star Wars, no one did anything that was mass market on, on a full-fledged scale. And that was accessible to everyone. So Bijo's goal was to unite different companies under one newsletter. So things such as conventions, fanzines, books, records, artwork, t-shirts. She was going to build a magazine where... We could consume things and buy them through the mail. 
So, so the magazine was basically a giant catalog. Yeah. Interesting, huh? But it still had photos and articles in there. I've never so, well, read so one then of these lo- issues. I mean, it's, it sounds a lot like Starlog. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it does sound like a good idea. So, I mean, it's like, um, well, I mean, I know like we've always said, but it's like the internet is now. But back then it was, you know, that was like one, one place where you could go and look up all these things that you might be interested in buying. Yeah, I, David is really excited about this. He said that this is organized by science fiction fans for science fiction fans, so it is specifically aimed at your interests, and I highly recommend that you subscribe. So subscriptions by second-class mail are $3 for four issues. By first-class mail, it's $5 for four issues. That's, I mean, I guess it's a good price for what it is, and the thing is when you get it, then you're going to spend more money ordering stuff. (laughs) But yeah, that, that would have been cool. I mean, I, I didn't see it back then. It, it must, yeah, and it was something you, you had to order the, the catalog, the magazine, though. You couldn't find that in stores. Correct. So again, David Gerald, that's great that he is spreading the word on what Bijo is trying to do. I remember as a kid, I was going crazy looking for the Star Trek Mego dolls because we, we know that there was such a, the, the distribution was all screwed up. So I had, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. But I see the pictures on back. I was like, who's this Neptunian? I don't even know what a Neptunian is. Who's the keeper? I don't see the keeper anywhere. So I would have loved to have some kind of catalog like this if I was able to get things through the mail. But then the big project would be to ask my parents for it. Yeah, when we were kids, (laughs) it was harder to order stuff. Can you write a check out for me, Mom? Greetings, everyone. This is Lauren White, a.k.a. The Poetic Engineer, joining you once again. article that we're looking at today is called Jovian Passage. So the article is basically speaking to uh, the adventures of Voyager 1 and following on Voyager 2, although Voyager 2 was launched prior to Voyager 1, and its exploration of Jupiter and its, quote, many solar systems unquote, and various moons. And there are a lot of pretty pictures in here of the moons that I have never seen, uh, with a focus on the four Galilean moons, the ones that were discovered by Galileo, and are also the four largest moons for Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. So, of course, where does a Star Trek fan have to go with this article As soon as we see the words Voyager 1, yes, we have to talk about the motion picture. We have to go on that tangent. Sorry, can't help it. So let's throw a few dates out there. Voyager 1 was launched September 5th, 77. Voyager 2, as mentioned, went out before Voyager 1 and was launched August 20th, 77. This article was put out July 1979, and the motion picture, Star Trek, the motion picture, the first film after the original series was canceled, was put out in 1979. It's all around the same time. It's so cool. So the Voyager uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have been out and about in their interstellar travel for 44 plus years. And for those of us that have seen the motion picture, uh, spoiler alert, 
we realize that the quote-unquote enemy that we encounter at the beginning of the movie ultimately turns out to be Voyager 1 stuck in interstellar space filled with all the information that it has gathered on its travels, on its exploration, and it's trying to find its way back to the creator, back to Earth, to share all of the information that it's gathered. Now, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have been out for 44 plus years. This film took place in the futuristic 2270s, a couple hundred years from now. We see what Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have already gathered as far as data. We can only imagine what they might gather at that point. Is it really such an unrealistic scenario when you think of it? Can you imagine all that could be gathered by that point with our advances in technology? What we might learn about space that we still don't know. What else we might find out there? Is it possible that they could, in fact, fill their databanks and want to come back and say, hey, we're good. We got a ton of stuff to share with you. Now, we won't go into the rest of the film and joining with the creator and all of that other stuff. Uh, Of course, the motion picture is one of the least popular of the six-film franchise for the original series spinoffs. But isn't it kind of awesome to think of? And this is actually a lesson that I learned from my dad when we were looking at the original series movies, is that even when people are upset about them, they don't have enough action, they don't quite like the plot, maybe they just weren't well done, they all have basis in a very real thought and foundation. They have basis in things that we really ought to think about. So to start with this motion picture, this is based on on reality. We have these probes out there gathering information. We have learned things about space and what is around us that we never thought to learn. It's crazy when you you watch that movie when Spock goes on his little space voyage there. It's it's a strange scene. We can all admit it. (laughs) But there's a lot of things out there that Voyager 1 slash V'ger got a hold of. Uh, Planets, spaceships, etc. It took on uh, a consciousness. It became somewhat sentient. Aren't these the things that that we think about, that we uh, postulate about in various movies like Terminator and iRobot, etc.? That these these things that we create, this technology that we create, could become sentient. And is it so wrong to believe that this probe could gather so much and enough data, and that we will eventually one day encounter it when we don't have it out there anymore? when it's gone beyond its point of now of 44 plus years to however long we have it out there and it'll come back. And what are the potential repercussions of that? What could potentially happen because of that? It might not be good or it might not be bad, but it is definitely something that would be a jumping off point from where we are now. And that's something that is beautiful about 
all of the Star Trek movies is how grounded they are in what we are doing now. And so I'm going to go off on a little tangent here from the Jovian passage, from Jupiter, from Voyager 1. And hopefully folks won't mind that I'm going to talk a little about the Star Trek films and what they teach us about. So I've discussed Star Trek 1, the motion picture, and then we move to Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, everybody's favorite film, the most iconic of the six, as most would say. Here you have a bad guy, the Space Seed. He is 300 years old, product of genetic engineering. We're trying to clone things again. Are we really that far off from where we got Khan and trying to program things? We got him. We got movies like Gattaca. You can start picking your kid's hair and doing all that other stuff, colors and and, and everything. So here we have Khan which is not a far-off dream, the way that we're going. And then he's just trying to make the world better. He's still a bad guy. His, uh, His heart was in the right place initially, as is unfortunately the case with so many others that try to do things with their quote-unquote hearts in the right place in just the absolute wrong way and their gross misinterpretations of things, but not getting too deep into that. What happens when you leave someone alone for a few years and he comes back to get you? What happens when we wrong someone? In this time that we're in, this pandemic time, people are really showing themselves and we're getting to know each other, strangers and friends, in a way that we didn't know them before. And, and some folks are disappointing us. Be kind to one another. You know, that's a lesson that I take from that movie. And not to say that Kirk wasn't totally valid in everything that he did. Because he was. And Khan deserved to die <laughs> at the end of that movie. Uh, but think on your past and, and think on people. That's what I would take from that. And, uh, you know, make sure you don't have children gallivanting about the universe that you don't know about. Because that's a a lot of child support to gather after a while. Moving on. The search for Spock. Now, if you ask me, that was actually the worst of the six. I'm not entirely sure the direction we were going with that. Because we could have found Spock without the Klingons and all that stuff. And without losing David. That was a mess. Okay, I couldn't handle that part. My favorite part about that movie, though, is when Kirk gets told, no, Derek, you're not going. And he tells his crew, I am therefore going anyway. Fight for your friends. That's what I take from it. I say these things, like, because I love Kirk, I love everything about him, but I'm probably more of a Captain Picard because I am very process-oriented. But I just, I love that part about that movie is... You know, we're always promoting the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Uh, But sometimes, yeah, the needs of the one or the few outweigh the needs of the many. And sometimes somebody's just having a bad day and they need all the attention. Spock was having a really bad day. You know, he was going through Ponfar like multiple times as he was aging with the planet. 
and he needed his friend. And is that not a lesson that we can take into today? Star Trek IV, Voyage Home. Whales. That is probably the movie that I remember the most from my childhood. My parents always showed us the original series and the original series movies. And my brother and I loved the whales. Even now, when I talk to my mom, if she's going to name any of the movies, she can name that one, A Voyage Home. It has its great moments. And I remember my dad saying once that it was something to think about. Edit, edit. Something to think about. What could happen if we let whales go extinct? If we let other animals mammals, plants, whatever, go extinct. Again, nothing far off because we've done it. We have let things go extinct. We have endangered species. And that movie is a result of what has happened because of our short-sightedness. Is there going to be a probe that needs to communicate with whales that's going to try and kill us? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But have we considered the consequences, unintended or not, of how we are using the Earth and its inhabitants? Again, very real plot based in foundation of where we are now. These are things that we are starting to see and think about. Now, the final frontier, Star Trek V. Everybody hates The Final Frontier, and I'm going to catch a bit of flack for this. I actually don't hate that movie. At all. Um, it's, it's not the worst movie for me. It's the second worst, but it's not the worst movie for me. And tell me that McCoy and Kirk and Spock are around a campfire trying to sing campfire tunes. Row, row, row your boat is not absolutely hilarious. Probably my favorite line in that movie is when McCoy says about Spock to Kirk, I like him better, I liked him better before he died. Okay, that movie has great moments in it. Now, of course, we meet one of Spock's siblings because now we know apparently he had multiple of them because we got a Michael Burnham hanging out here. And please, please, folks, if you do any more Star Trek spinoffs, we don't want to find out that Spock had any more siblings. Okay. Of all the people in the series, of all the characters we have, we do not want to find out that Spock had any more siblings, okay? Coming back. Again, spoiler alert, there's so many in here. So with Star Trek V Final Frontier, we meet Spock's brother, Cybok, who is trying to find what we ultimately figure out is God. And at the end of the movie... He finds what he thinks is God in Shangri-La. And it ultimately turns out to be an alien that thinks he's God. It's, it's a falsehood. It's depressing. I have the opportunity to see Shatner speak at a con in North Carolina. And he discussed The Final Frontier because that was his movie that he had written and directed. And it was his intent that the character find and discover God in whatever entity that might be. But time and budget 
etc., didn't allow him to complete the vision that he had for that movie. And so it was suggested, well, what if it's an alien that thinks he's God? And Shatner said, and so he lost the, the plot of his movie. And I had so much more respect for The Final Frontier after that, hearing him say that, to know that's not where he intended to go. But the natural fatalities befell that movie. And again, so close to home, with so many people uh, deeply set in religion, again, especially now, whether it's in a good way or a way that causes unspeakable damage and destruction, you know, and they're doing it in the name of God. And Cybok was trying to find God and understand it and, and try to bring peace to people, which is what most people want out of religion or that relationship. Very relevant for our time period. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I feel like many people forget about this movie. And I have to say, it is probably my favorite after The Wrath of Khan. Yes, yes, I know. I said everybody loves The Wrath of Khan, but that's because it's awesome and because Ricardo Montalban had his real chest in that movie. There was no chest double, and he was something like 57 years old, and it was hot. So yes, it is still my favorite movie, even though it's everybody's favorite movie. Don't judge me. But Undiscovered Country, which again, most people forget about, is probably my second favorite movie. Now, some people remember it as the movie where McCoy and Kirk got banished to the snow planet and met Amon. Yes, that happened. <laughs> but why did it happen? Because after all this time, the Federation was trying to make peace with the Klingons. And we saw how difficult that was for Kirk to accept when he got that assignment based on Spock's recommendation. He was distrusting of them. He couldn't forgive them for killing his son. It was his own, I'm not even going to say unconscious bias, but his own bias against them, against what some of them had done. And I don't want to go deep into themes of, of racism or, or, or bias, but that is basically what that movie is pulsing. And you can see it in the the beginning of the film during that very very uncomfortable dinner where everybody's making a lot of judgmental comments about the other side. Look at how they eat. Look how they do this. Like, how do you do that? You know, they're all very unaccepting of each other at the beginning, despite their efforts at trying. But sometimes Romulan Ale just, just doesn't do it, right? Can't solve all problems. And I think it is such a beautiful movie the way that it ultimately came together at the end. It wasn't perfect, but they were looking for peace. And they took the legacy of how that started, how their talks started, and decided it was something that they wanted to pursue. Ignoring the individual capabilities of those who wouldn't have it that were on the Klingon side, on the Federation side, on the Vulcan side. 
you know, there were, there were people that just wouldn't accept that we can all live together. And, and I love that movie for it. It had a very cheesy ending with the mob standing on the platform for some reason, like for no reason. It's like, let's shoot people and then I'll walk to the front and then just stand there cheesing it. So I'm not, I'm not really sure <laughs> what direction they were going when they, they did that last scene. I get it was the last movie and all, but it was, uh, it was adorable. And so I just, I love that movie. I think it's great. I think if you haven't watched it in a while, it really speaks to where we need to come now as a people, where we need to push ourselves towards. So I took this article and I went in a completely different, probably unexpected direction with it because I am not focused solely on space exploration and, uh, I was about to say the Voyager Voyages, which isn't wrong, but sounds terrible. But the Voyager Explorations and the lessons that we have taken from them. If we destroy each other or destroy this earth or destroy this world because we have not taken to heart the lessons that we are learning right now in our current state from the world or from each other, or from Star Trek, because I always say Star Trek can teach you lessons, because it's forward thinking. These movies were made after it was canceled. If we don't do that, when will we get to see what we haven't discovered yet? Are we going to make it to the 2270s, to the 23rd century, where we have no money and no pollution and we're we're still working on everything else we're still working on peace but we're going in the right direction i want to see one of jupiter's moons it'd be really cool to kind of step on it don't know if that'll happen don't know if that'll happen with any other places maybe mars we seem like we're getting there and maybe there are the other galaxies that we haven't discovered discovered edit edit Maybe there are the other galaxies that we haven't discovered. The other Class M planets that we haven't found. In the 70s, when this article about the Jovian Passage was written, and we talked about Jupiter's moons, how crazy would it be for that author to write an article right now from this new perspective of everything that we have discovered in all the places that we have been and we're about to launch through NASA's Artemis program people to the moon again and Shatner is going to space it's so great I love it this is how it starts people this is how it starts this is how the Federation of Planets starts because Captain Kirk is actually going to space yes I was so excited when I saw that and people that know me were like, hey, Lauren, did you see that article? Did you, did you, did you, did you, did you, did you hear about Captain Kirk? And I was like, yes, yes, of course I did. That's the direction we want to keep going, folks. We want more articles like this, more articles about the moons and the other places that we are just getting to see. And we need to come together as a peaceful humanity to be able to do that. So I know this is probably a little deep. And a little tangential for the Starpod 
cast, but hopefully folks will appreciate and enjoy this, or at the very least forgive me for my ramblings about humanity and the Earth. They are all coming from my Star Trek heart. I do love talking about these things, about space and the future, science and technology and society. Uh, these are these are topics that are close to my heart. And I look forward to talking with you again, either on this podcast or on my own. You can find more information about me about at www.thepoeticengineer.com. Starlog interview with... William Shatner. So this is an interview by Barbara Lewis with William Shatner on the set of the motion picture. And we know that Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, they were the ones that were hard at work right before filming the motion picture and right after the motion picture. And she straight up asked them, you know, even though you're so busy, do you actually like watching Star Trek or being involved in Star Trek? And he says, I, I enjoy it. And I did enjoy it. So he says in there that he did watch it. And, you know, recent years he says he's never watched himself. Now, I'm sure that he has seen some episodes. He just doesn't particularly care to watch himself. I, I think that's it. He, he he probably did sit down and watch it, but maybe he, he might not have really been a fan of it. And so he doesn't he didn't want to tell people he didn't like it. So now he'll just say he didn't watch it. And, and I get it. Like, I don't like going to my job on my day off. <laughs> it's got to be hard for actors just to say, okay, my time is my time. I don't want to review what I did for work. Because they view it in a different sense. They do, even though, even though some actors have different opinions about it. But, yeah, I can see where Bill is going with this, yeah. And she relates how, just like Leonard Nimoy, he has been remaining highly visible during the years between 1969 and 1979, uh, especially the film The Kingdom of Spiders, which was very popular. Yeah, that was another great movie that he made. And I and I do remember, I didn't see it back then, but I remember seeing the, the trailers for it on TV. And we've seen it as an adult, and we have to say, it is excellent. It's very well made, and Bill does an astounding job there. Yeah, he does a little bit of Captain Kirk in it, but he's... <laughs> But yeah, he was, he, yeah, he did a great job in it. But also he was involved in recording this live show called William Shatner Live. And he was doing that on tour. I mean, this guy travels from city to city sharing his love of fandom. And, and Starlog has reported on that. And, and yeah, it, w- it would have been neat. I wish I could have seen him on tour back then. That would have been great to see. And the thing is, though, he, but he's really even more visible now. And as, you know, now that he's 90, he's actually more visible than he was back then, which is amazing. Isn't that crazy to think about? Now, you, you mentioned he's 90. We don't really talk about modern Star Trek stuff so much when we're talking about these classic Star Logs. But look at how far he has come as a person and as an entertainer. He just went off into space and made history. Can you imagine telling him during this time, Bill, you're struggling right now. You're pounding the pavement going on college campus tours to, at, with your William Shatner live. Can you imagine that decades from now you're going to be going out into space, that you are going to make history? I don't think he'd believe it. No, he he wouldn't. But that that's really what's so amazing about it. You know, you know, 
we didn't really think he he would have done it either back then. Nobody had any idea. And he goes on to say that he's working on all kinds of things, but people are always interested in what it was like to be Captain Kirk on Star Trek. And he says that he doesn't want to talk about it, not because he doesn't like Star Trek, but because he has other things that he's proud of. And I can see his point. Yeah, I mean, he, he wanted to be known for other things, and of course he did do other things. And 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 you can understand that, that an actor, you know, plays so many parts, and, and he, even at that time he didn't know that he would play Kirk so many more times, you know, after the motion picture. He goes on to say, I was always enthusiastic about going on with it. The part of Captain Kirk was always a great acting challenge. The part of Captain Kirk has to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, role in series television. I never got bored with it. Amazing. I mean, I mean, the the way he played Kirk was very physical. So, and it does look like he was enjoying the part. I mean, he, you know, he got into it definitely. Now, this is a typical Bill response. He says, "When they asked me to appear." In a TV motion picture, I felt that as long as Kirk was the central, the pivotal role it had always been on the series, I was terribly enthusiastic. As it turned out, it's a marvelous role in a major motion picture, so I'm gratified from that point of view as well. Bill wants to be the center of attention. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. He is not sharing the stage. This is Captain Kirk's ship, even if it's well, not yeah. Captain Kirk's ship. He he is the star. That's the, he knows he's the star, yes. and he's been you know he he likes being the leading man. And the thing is, the way the motion picture turned out, it, it didn't really seem like Kirk was um, that important to the movie. I mean, when you look at it, I think Spock had a big part in it, as far as carrying along. When the plot. I look at the motion picture, I one of the things I love so much about it is you get the feeling of the gang is all together again. That's what was great about it. I mean, seeing the. Um, Everybody reunited. And that's one of my biggest problems with the Star Wars sequels. You didn't have Luke, Han, and Leia, and Chewie, and C-3PO and R2-D2 all back together again. How do you screw that up? Whereas for, yes, motion picture does have some flaws, you get that feel good of everyone's back together again. And I, and I love seeing Captain Kirk in a captain's chair. I did too, and having the crew be so excited that that Kirk was taking over the ship, mm-hmm. and and that felt that felt right when you're when you're watching it. And he he mentions this about what it's like to go back on the set ten years later after the original series canceled. He said it's strange with this ten year gap, walking back onto the bridge of the Enterprise for the first time. The movie's Enterprise was eerie. It was deja vu. And yet, at the same time, there was a feeling that time had not passed at all. Most of the old crew members were there, and in the first couple moments before filming started, all I was aware of that all these laughing and talking people were the laughs and talkers of old. It was as though ten years hadn't passed. Quite strange and bizarre. Other than that, there was nothing different. And I think these actors probably, they probably saw each other a few times at cons, right? During the 10 years, but yeah, but to have them all together in one room acting together, that, that must have been, you know, really strange and really awesome. And, and, but the thing is, the set was different. The set and the costumes were different. So it had mm-hmm. to have a different feel to it. And I think for a lot of them, these costumes were not as comfortable as before. And now Shatner does make the point that he did have somewhat of advantage because he had been working with motion pictures previous. 
and I never really thought about this, but some of the others were not used to pacing of a picture, a motion picture. They were only used to television. So they had to kind of be retrained and realize that it was a whole different world. Whereas Bill and Leonard, they've been doing this. They've been keeping active in motion pictures. Yeah, that is interesting too. The it, It's a little bit different, even though they... You know, the other actors had smaller parts, so for them, they they could probably adjust more easily. But, but yeah, it, it is a different change, a different uh, pace doing the movie. And he said that this was different because they had to make breaks for the special effects, and those times were tedious. We know that in the original series, there really was no such thing. It's probably because the effects were so much bigger for this movie and that you know the special effects were like they they were almost the star of the movie too totally he makes a point of it by saying the type of science fiction movies currently being made that are highly popular including star wars and close encounters we saw effects of epic proportion and he feels that star trek the movie will be even bigger and i think better I think that on the big screen, the epic quality of special effects is completely necessary, but in this film, we've also attempted to retain the interaction of the characters and the story that suggests something larger than life. The combination of the two will be something really marvelous, and I suspect the final result will be very special. He's really pushing it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, so, he, so he had to make like, like he thought it was really going to be a good movie, and he, he probably did. I mean, yeah. But, but it's just the way, but you look at the movie and the way Kirk, Kirk was really like bitter in the movie. You know, he was, he felt old, like he was being pushed out and he was trying to get the ship back. Well, that's what a good actor William Shatner is because we see through this interview that he's really positive. He's hopeful. He's excited. And, and that's great that he was. And we, yeah, we were excited, you know, reading this article back then and, and all, you know, so looking forward to seeing the movie. Starlog interview, Leonard Nimoy, he is Spock. Now again, this is an interview with Barbara Lewis interviewing Leonard Nimoy. So she got to interview the two big guns in the motion picture. How awesome would that have been? Yeah, she was probably on the set within the same day and and got to do uh, both interviews. So she called it He is Spock, which, which you know she got from his autobiography, I Am Not Spock. And she clarifies that yeah. in this interview. The beautiful thing is that anytime you look at a modern retelling of why it took Leonard Nimoy so long to get back into action on Star Trek The Motion Picture, anyone talking about it condenses it and just says, well, Leonard was holding out for more money. Now, that is true to a point. But right off the bat, he clarifies all that was involved. And, and this is why Starlog interviews are so precious. And also we're able to look at things at that time point in history, that is um, the moments just before the motion picture. And also we're looking at everything within context of everything else that was going on in science fiction as well and in his career. So it's quoted by saying, I find myself explaining this ad nauseum, but I'll go over it briefly. It was the result of a chronological problem in 1977. In the summer of that year, having reached an agreement with Phil Kaufman, who was then to direct Star Trek 
the feature and Jerry Eisenberg, who was then to produce it, what we would make a film in January of 1978. I left for New York to play the psychiatrist in Equus on Broadway. Just about the time I arrived and began rehearsals, Paramount decided to start a Paramount Television Network. And the flagship show of that network was to be the new Star Trek series. They wanted to start filming in September or October, and I just wasn't available. I was committed to Equus. Now, we've been talking about this. Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. They have been involved in some sort of acting creative projects since they left Star Trek. Both of them have been active actors. And for Leonard, the you know not wanting to do the motion picture right away is because he, he already had another job. He had a contract. Makes sense. He goes on to say, That being the case, they wrote the script without Mr. Spock, and within four days of starting the film, they changed their mind about the series and decided to go back to the concept of the motion picture. And even in the motion picture, Spock wasn't in it from the beginning. I mean, he he was in that beginning scene on Vulcan. But you know, when they were on the Enterprise, Spock didn't come in until after the wormhole incident. I mean, like That's like right. about, what, 45 minutes into the movie. And he does make mention of, he doesn't call it that, but Star Trek Phase 2. Right, which he couldn't do. That's why they got another um, Vulcan. They, they Yes, they wrote the part for another Vulcan in that. He's aware of all this. <laughs> and the producers are aware he is a working actor. they got to keep the story moving, but if if Leonard can't do it, we got to get somebody else to do it. And guess what? Leonard's all right with this. He goes on to say, I came back from New York in the middle of October, having completed my commitment of Equus, and they weren't ready. I went back and did Invasion of the Body Snatchers. When I completed that, I was available, and they were ready to start talking seriously about the Star Trek movie. So, so again, it was all timing. So it's like, yeah, they're not ready, so I'll make another movie. Maybe by that time they'll be ready, and they were. And he's involved in things on and theater, and we know that you know he he has a passion for theater. He loves doing theater. Also, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was a hit movie. It's not like he's struggling. He, he he is an in-demand actor. And he goes on to say that he was also involved for three years in the series In Search Of. Another great series. Yeah, and another thing that he was doing. So he, he had all of this all of this work behind him. So he said there were so many restrictions on his time, whereas now he's able to do the motion picture. But previously, he wouldn't be able to do so. So all of this makes sense. Yeah, it's not it's not like um he was um avoiding it or anything. He was willing to sit down and talk to them when when he could do it. And he goes on to say he just finished starring in Vincent, a stage play that he wrote in the past uh, on the last 12 years of the life of Vincent Van Gogh and his relationship with his brother Theo. So just think about that. Not only is he starring in this one-man production, but he is writing it as well. So, of course, Leonard's busy. He's creative. He's amazing. Yeah, so he was doing so much back then, and even and later on in life, he, w- he was still uh, pretty busy, too. So, yeah, he had all this stuff going, and he was... I think he, he even... Um, yeah, he did TV interviews about Vincent. I remember seeing that, too. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was, you know, also doing interviews promoting his work. 
And we know that right after Star Trek, we're going to go back a little bit further now. We, we've been mainly talking about the years 77 to 79, but he right after Star Trek, he did Mission Impossible. Major role there. That's right. He he immediately got a part on another TV series. So to to say that Leonard didn't get involved in Star Trek the motion picture just because he was negotiating money, well, yes, that's part of it, but also a major part is that he is a creative genius, and he was very in demand. So all that time he kept busy, but we really are glad that he was able to do the motion picture. You know, he finally found the, the time. He had a break in his other jobs so that he com- could come back and do the movie because it just wouldn't have been the same without Spock. Now, they did ask, what is your role going to be in the motion picture? And are we going to see Vulcan? Are we going to get some more background? And Leonard was very vague in his response. He says, well, he's asking himself some specific questions or questions that are be asked of him that is Spock he's talking about. And he's looking for specific answers to those questions. And during the course of the story, we'll hope he finds his answers. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's very true when, when you watch the movie. It is, but it's so vague of an answer that, okay, the interviewer's like, uh, you're kind of dancing around. But, <laughs> but like you said, when but, you yeah. watch the movie, that is exactly what's going on. Spock is trying to find himself. Well, I mean, Leonard at the time didn't want to give any spoilers, true. of course. But yeah, we're so glad that the movie did have a lot to do with Spock. And and it was great it, it, it was a great exploration of his character watching the movie. Now the interviewer also asked what was it like to work with the other cast? And Leonard says it was better than it ever was before. We were under intense pressure while we were taping the original series. We have a more relaxed atmosphere now because the schedule isn't as restrictive. The money, obviously, is a bit more plentiful, so we could do more of the things we'd like to do. We have a very relaxed and wise director in Robert Wise, and the atmosphere is very good. Now, I can see that because the deadlines for television shows are insane. Whereas with a movie, you have to do your scenes and you know what your scenes are. And you could take a little bit of a break in between, especially it's something that's very special effects driven. Yeah, for movies, usually they're not as much um, set for time, even though I heard for this one they were because they had already set the release date. Well, that was the big mess up is putting yeah. the release date before they really the, made – Exactly. Before they even made half the movie, they set a release. They don't do that anymore now. Now they're a bit more reasonable. So, But I think it was great. Yeah, it was probably a, a more relaxed atmosphere. These people like already knew each other now. And and since they weren't on as tight a schedule, they could they could hang out a little bit more and enjoy it a little more. He said, I've been looking forward to doing this very much, especially since we held that first press conference. I've seen all the other cast members individually or in small groups over the years, but that day was the first time since the end of the series that we all had been assembled together in one room. I felt that the chemistry of that day was very exciting, and from that day, I look forward to doing this. So it's kind of like what you said. He had to be seeing others at conventions. Yeah, so so they kind of renewed their friendships and acquaintances. 
And, you know, from what we've heard, we've heard now, I mean, all, all of them got along with Leonard. So, oh, so he's he an was, amazing person. yeah, he was a great guy. And they all said it, yeah. Now, they asked, what'd you think about Star Trek, the original series? And he says, I've seen all the episodes. And of course, I've watched it on TV occasionally in the past, particularly if I'm traveling and staying in hotels while doing a play and I have to work in the evening. I turn on the TV in the afternoon and watch the episode, particularly if it's one I haven't seen in a while. Now, isn't that so different from Kirk? Because William Shatner says he doesn't particularly like watching himself, but Leonard says, I've seen them all. Yeah, that was interesting. And and I do remember you know other interviews with Leonard where he said that he... He gets ideas for his own acting when he goes back and watches himself. He says that in here, too. He says he looks for certain keys that could affect future plot points. So this is this is 1979 he's saying this, and we know down the road he is going to have major involvements in directing and producing Star Trek. So he's been a fan for years. Yes, and even with... Um... I mean, The Next Generation, I know he watched some of the episodes before he was on it. That's right. It says that Leonard Nimoy continued to be closed-mouthed towards the movie, which is a good thing. Yes. But it says that in between writing and acting, he also manages to find time to lecture at universities throughout the United States and Canada, speaking on science fiction, reading and discussing his poetry, and talking about the entertainment business. Some of Nimoy's black-and-white photograph studies, in which he specializes, have been displayed in various exhibits. We, we've we seen an exhibit with his photographs before in the modern era. Yeah, I know, and, and he uh, he um, released some books, too, that had some of his photography in them, even back, back then, yes. He says, I try not to worry about success. Do you know what I mean by that? If things are going well, I try to concern myself with doing my job rather than examining why things are going well. I haven't the slightest idea if that has anything to do with it that is his popularity as Spock he's talking about. My concern is, do I have interesting work to do, and do I do it well? As long as these things fall into place, I let other people decide why I'm getting the work. What a great attitude. He's so in- intriguing as a person. He could kind of step back from it and and see the the whole picture. So, so, but he was really happy to be working, and he he was doing what he loved all the time: the the acting and the writing, and then later on directing. Okay, we're gonna close out by speaking about one of the ads that's found in the classifieds. This is a curious one. It is by Clint Alvord, out of Shrewsburg, Massachusetts. He has something for sale called Far Trek, Wild Trek parody. It's black and white. And a Close Encounters of the Third Kind spoof. A cassette is $2.50. So he made his own uh, comedy fan film. Yes! It's a crossover, but it's not a film. It's a cassette tape. It says cassette. Right, it could be video cassette. I was thinking audio cassette. But um, I'm getting out of this. It's a crossover between Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Trek. Okay, yeah, I mean, people, you know, the the creative minds of the fans were still working back then. And it was video, because he said black and white. Oh, duh, yes, you're right, black and white, yeah, so it is video, yes. Yeah, I always call them videotapes, but yeah, it's a video cassette. Yeah, $2.50, so I guess that includes shipping. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, sounds neat. I wonder how many of them he sold. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu, nanu.